0: It's from Mark chapter 8, page 1012. Mark chapter 8, page 1012. Short reading, verses 22 to 26. Verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. This is the word of the Lord.
1: This is what we're looking at this evening. So the incident, what strikes you about it? How is it different from actually all the other miracles that Jesus did? What the difference is is that Jesus seems to have had to have two goes at performing it. So, they bring the blind man, they beg Jesus to touch him, Jesus took him outside of the village, away from the crowds. He respected his dignity, because he was now just going to spit in the guy's eyes, which is not very pleasant, but I guess if you're going to have your sight then it is well worth it. But instead of an instant miracle, which is to the best of my knowledge and remembrance, I can't think of Jesus having to have two goes with anybody else. They were always uh, instant and complete. Um, that instead of an instant miracle, this man only sees rather hazily. I see people... They look like trees walking around. I imagine it's a bit like if you happen to get cataracts, things become rather fuzzy and rather hazy. So Jesus has another go. This time we read his eyes were opened and his sight restored and he saw everything clearly. Now why the difficulty? Why wasn't the miracle instantaneous? Why the delay? Well, it's clearly not Jesus' lack of ability. He certainly had the power to do it on every other occasion. And I think there are 34 recorded miracles that Jesus did. And given that many of them are collective, and we don't know how many people he healed at a particular time, um, you know, we have a lot to go on. This is unique. And uh, his other miracles are recorded... Many of them were done in front of hostile witnesses who could quite easily have kind of said, no, 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 that never happened. But they don't. They do recognise that he had supernatural power to do these miracles. So Jesus must have done it for a reason. Miracles that Jesus did were obviously a benefit to to those who were on the receiving end. But Jesus was no first century alternative health service because very often he would arrive at a place and he only cured one person, even though many were doubtless hoping he would perform a miracle on them. So he cured one person, he spoke his message and then he moved on, leaving the rest including those who doubtless could have done with a miracle exactly as they were. You see, for Jesus, miracles have two primary purposes. He wasn't on some kind of ego trip. You notice with this one, as with many others, he told the man not to go and tell anybody else, and Jesus fades away. No, for Jesus, miracles have two primary purposes. The first is to identify and the second is to illustrate. Miracles identify who Jesus is and they also illustrate what he has come to do. So you might have asked when a miracle happened before your eyes, had you been there or if as you're reading it now? Who can control nature? Who can calm a storm just as quickly as that? Who can give life to the dead? There are three recorded incidents where Jesus raises somebody from the dead. Who can create out of nothing? Who can restore somebody who is a paraplegic from birth back to how they are meant to be instantaneously? And the answer is only one person God Himself they were done for identification purposes. But they are also illustrations to show what Jesus has come to do. So for the deaf person, being able to hear illustrates that people need to hear the message of God, of the Gospel, to enable them to understand the meaning of life and how they can connect and be at peace with God. Opening the eyes of the blind illustrates that they can see him and having seen him, they can see what life is all about. So what is Jesus getting at here? Why take two goes? Well, I think the answer is that this man illustrates how many people end up coming to Jesus. For many people, it is not initially terribly clear-cut. They are not one moment blind and the next moment able to see clearly. It is in between. It's all a bit foggy for them. It is all a bit hazy. They are like this man, no longer blind, but they can't see clearly. It can be very difficult to know whether such people are, in fact, Christians or not. Indeed, if you talk with them, they're not actually very sure themselves. Sometimes they feel they are, sometimes they feel they're not. And that's the reality for some people. Maybe you, this evening, are one of them. Now, I want to help you, because this is not a state to be in. It is a fairly miserable state, because you know enough about the world... To know that it doesn't actually answer, uh, doesn't actually hold the answers to the really big questions in life. And yet you know enough of Christ to know that He does, but somehow you are not there yet. You're in sort of a no man's land in the middle, neither one side nor the other. Well, let's see what these few verses reveal, because. We're not meant to be in that state of mind and fortunately we can get out of it. My first Crusader camp was at Westbrook in the summer of 1965. The year Sir Winston Churchill died, I can remember on television, you know, his state funeral. Lyndon Johnson was the President of the United States, Harold Wilson was the Prime Minister of the UK and Mary Poppins won five Oscars. It was then that I either heard for the first time or more likely it registered to me for the first time that Jesus was for real, that he was God and I should align myself with him and seek his forgiveness and invite him into residence in my life. But I held back. Thinking back, That was mainly for volitional reasons. I was concerned what my friends would think if I got religion or became a Christian. And so for a whole year, I was in the state that I've just described. I knew it was true, but I hadn't committed myself. It was a foggy time. In the following year, again at Westbrook, 1966, when the Beatles' Yellow Submarine was number one, and England won the World Cup 4-2 at Wembley. And actually only last week, when I was trying to clear out part of my garage, I found the World Cup final programme from 1966. Unfortunately, the front page was torn off, but it was still there, so I don't suppose it would get me more than a fiver. But uh, it was then, in 1966, on what was a crusader camp, now urban saints, that I handed my life over to him. Well, notice, first of all then, that this man begins to see, but it is hazy. And there are many who are rightly dissatisfied with life, and they get restless and they lose interest in their job and they opt out and they go off to do something totally different. Merchant bankers go off to weave wool in Welsh hills or glamorous models give it all up to look after stray cats. Now, these people are right to identify a certain dissatisfaction in life. You know, they've achieved quite a lot, but they still will know there's something missing, something more sadly though they of course look in the wrong places they try to fill the vacuum but unless they fill it with what their lives are meant to be filled with then the restlessness will still remain unless you get the missing piece you will never function properly i once had an old black and decker hedge trimmer it worked perfectly well there was actually nothing wrong with it, except there was one screw missing. All it needed to get going again was that one particular screw. And only one particular type of screw would do. One made for that machine alone. No other was any good at all. You could try using them, but still it wouldn't work properly. And we're like that. We function. But life doesn't function properly unless we have the missing piece. And you can spell peace either way. Very often people are in a miserable state because they're beginning to see what they're missing and they have realised that they cannot do much about it. So the next stage is people going through, as it were, where they see, but not clearly, that it's all rather vague and confusing. The man in the miracle sees, but he sees people like trees walking. And there are plenty of people around who have no clear understanding of life. And they can be very well educated, or they can be very uneducated. It doesn't matter, it's not actually to do with that. But they have no clear understanding as to why they're here. And what is the purpose of life? And what are we meant to do in the time that we've got? They see Jesus has something, but they do not understand, for example, how the cross works and what Jesus is able to do for them and what they cannot do for themselves. Their thinking is all a bit fuzzy. But in addition to their mind not thinking clearly, their heart is not fully engaged. They know they're not happy. There is not the naturalness that Christians have in talking about their relationship with Jesus. So they don't think straight and they don't feel right and then their will is divided, they're rebellious, they do not want to surrender their allegiance to Jesus. Just as I didn't, I think, for that year. Very often they realise that to do so would place certain demands upon them. Things to do and things not to do And so they hold off. So their minds, hearts and wills, or intellect, emotion and volition conspire to prevent progress through the fog. So thirdly, now, why are people in the midst of misery? Four reasons. See if you recognise any of them. First of all, people do not like clear-cut thinking. We are living in what is called an aerosol age sometimes. We spray aerosol around and it all fuzzes up. Vague systems of belief are much more attractive and much less demanding than clear-cut thinking, which makes demands. So, for example, if you find an iPhone X in your garden and you ask a friend how it got there, there are three options that your friend could offer. One it has always been there it is old it is as old as your garden the second it has appeared by chance where nothing somehow has become something or someone made it and left it there apple in this case now it's not difficult to work out what is the most reasonable conclusion well yet when it comes to the universe people back off making the most reasonable conclusion that the universe requires a creator behind it all. Why? Because if there is a creator, he is obviously all-powerful. If he is, then we ought to submit to his authority. We don't want to do that, so we fuzz everything up so we don't have to decide. Jesus Christ is okay so long as he is left just as being one of the uh, many world religious leaders that have popped up from century to century. Because then, of course, you can uh, bunch him in with some of the others who have some fairly loopy ideas at times, and you can take him or leave him. Once recognised who he is, and then what he has to say, and it becomes pretty clear-cut. And he demands decisions that can be very uncomfortable, And yet, ironically, they result in comfort. Restless until we find our rest in him. The second reason why many people who are Christians, even, but miserable, is that they are not prepared to accept the authority of the Bible, which is basically either the teaching of Jesus or he is endorsed, as he does just about every book of the Old Testament, bar one or two. Submit your mind to the teaching of the Bible and you will be content. If not, then you will pick and choose and mix it all up with your own ideas. There is no need to. The popular view is that the Bible is full of mistakes, that intelligent people have pulled it apart. So why then is it that very intelligent people think it utterly reliable? That it is truthful? Now many of you will have come back yesterday from M&M. Now even though he takes a back seat now and leaves it to younger folk like the Websters and the Yeliz to run it, Neil Barber is in the background. The old boy who really got M&F Somebody ought to let him know that I'm saying this. Um, <laughs> that um, the old boy who really got M&M going uh, with his wife Sarah, and I can remember one of the first camps that Neil, when he was here, he worked for IBM and then he became our youth worker and then he got ordained and was a curate and then he's gone off to Derby. And I can remember one of the first, they were called Crusader camps then, later Urban Saints, And then they've morphed into M&M and Dorset Venture and things. And it turned out that uh, he'd met another guy there, one of the other leaders who I'd been at university with. And I can remember this guy, Paul, becoming a Christian. He was a first year when I was a second year back in 1974. And that particular year, his year group, 30 of the 90 in that year group, at our college became Christians. Most of them were scientists. Quite a few of them were mathematicians, and some of those guys were brilliant. You know you know when you're pretty kind of uh, Mickey Mouse in comparison, not that I did maths, but, but um, I don't think I'd have got in the sixth form. Anyway, but um, they were. I can remember four of them brilliant enough to get first, and they're now professors of maths in different universities around the world. What they clearly were not are idiots. And i they may even be rather kind of OCD. You need to be pretty precise to be a mathematician. I suspect there's only a handful of people in North Hampshire who have their brain power. Now, they all thought very clearly and they concluded that it could be relied upon. And what that shows you is that it's not intelligence which makes you reject the authority of the Bible. It is will, pride. You don't want the consequences of adopting that position. There are others who remain in a spiritual malaise because they are more interested in how they feel than about the facts of Christianity. I once got into Pavarotti, you know, the Italian uh, opera singer? Luciano Pavarotti. I suspect a lot of people did because 20 years or so ago he sang the, uh, the particular signature tune to the World Cup. I used to play Pavarotti at full volume as I drove around Basingstoke in the car <laughs> and I felt really good about singing along with Luciano Pavarotti, really. I mean, it's wonderful. Now, when we used to go camping in France as a family in the summer, was one but I, I, I also would at times sing along with Pavarotti and uh, till I couldn't find the tape and they said oh it must have been lost my children and wife said but actually they had hidden it the rotters you know I got my revenge i played aqua and sung along with I'm a Barbie girl etc <laughs> anyway, um, but you know although Sometimes when I go to the cathedral, I, I, as an honorary canon, where my stall is, I stand immediately behind the kind of lead tenor in the choir. See? So when we stand up, I have the delusion that I'm actually contributing <laughs> to the choir, which, of course, I'm not. Anyway, back to Pavarotti. The whole experience of singing with him is, uh, is great, but it is superficial. It is merely mood. He was singing in Italian, and I was sort of joining along. After all, we recognised the Cornetto advert that uh, he sang to. And the only Italian I know is uh, Non Parlo Italiano, which is, uh, I'll leave you to work that out, it's pretty obvious. And uh, that can happen, of course, with Christian hymns and songs. The tune lifts us up. But if it is only the tune, then it is ephemeral. It will not last, just as my experiences with Pavarotti would just come and then evaporate. It is the truth of the words, which if we can be certain of, then that will be permanent. Take, for example, the hymn, We Rest On Thee, Our Shield and Our Defender. The tune is to the, Finnish, well the tune we use is to the Finnish composer Sibelius. And the tune is very stirring. The piece was composed for the press celebrations in 1899, and they were a covert protest against the increasing censorship from the Russian Empire. The Russians occupied Finland just over 100 years ago. And this particular, the last piece, Finlandia as it's called, was the last of seven pieces performed as an accompaniment to a tableau depicting episodes from Finnish history. And Finlandia, the last section, represents the future hoped-for overthrow of the Russians who occupied Finland. It is a very popular tune in Finland today. And nationalistic lyrics have been written to accompany it and it is doubtless very stirring for their sense of national identity in the UK we have adopted the tune to use with Edith Cherry's hymn we rest on thee our shield and our defender the music on its own may psych us up to feel good but it will be fleeting if that's all it is the words the truth about Christ is what makes the difference between a depressed and a joyful Christian, particularly as was the case of John Ellison in these last two or three weeks, the prospect of knowing that you're going to die soon and the prospect that you will meet with Christ. When passing through the gates of pearly splendour, victors we rest with thee through endless days. You need to know the truth of those words not just the stirring tune it is the words the truth that are the real comfort to the soul at such times the fourth reason for this spiritual depression which takes hold of people is that once they get into the Christian teaching they are not systematic they do it all in the wrong order for example you will never make head nor tail of the cross the doctrine of the atonement, unless you first understand and recognise Christ's diagnosis of human nature. If you don't reckon that man in his fallen state is totally unacceptable to God, then the cross will remain a mystery to you. You will not see any reason for it. Or take living the Christian life called sanctification. If you are into that before you understand the doctrine of justification, how you are put right with God, then you you will come up with the wrong conclusion. You will want to know what to do as a Christian before you know how to become one. Christianity will be to you a set of rules which you will try to live up to. You will then realise that you can't. You will get down. Both of those problems arise because we just won't think things through. What we all need is greater honesty and greater clarity. So if you are thinking about the Christian faith and you're beginning to realise it's true and it's what you need, then don't make a decision too soon. Think it all out first. Weigh the cost. If you profess to be a Christian, don't claim to have seen more than you have. If you don't, ask. If you don't understand something, ask. We will try and clear things up for you. The way to have that natural wholeheartedness of faith, which many professing Christians do find elusive, is simply to submit all of ourselves, our mind, our heart and our will, to the Lord Jesus Christ revealed in the scriptures and we will have the kind of positive faith that we are meant to have with an end to doubts and uncertainties that go to create a very unsatisfactory state of mind. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for um, this little... uh, event and from what we've been able to glean from it. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we, if we happen to be in the fog, might read the Bible and pray for clarity and seek the wisdom and advice of friends who've been longer in the faith. And we pray that when we see clearly, we will know to commit ourselves wholeheartedly with our mind, with our heart and with our will. Amen. (laughs) you <laughs>